Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. This is quite a significant show because it is the last show I'm going to be doing while Donald Trump is president. He's making his way out of the White House, and while I'm not going to get too political on this show, I just wanted to state that as a fact that next week, when I do my show, we'll have a brand new president, Joe Biden, and I am very curious to see how the inauguration this Wednesday goes. But putting politics aside, because I don't usually talk about politics on this show unless it pertains to a movie I'm watching, but anyway... I have three brand new movies to review for you for this show. And they are all Netflix originals, by the way. I tried to get other streaming platforms like Hulu and Disney+, Plus, but I didn't have exactly time to do that. So it's going to be Netflix originals right now for no particular reason other than the fact that Netflix is the primary way I get my new movies, but it isn't the sole way. It just was this week. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Outside the Wire. This is a brand new Netflix original film that premiered on Netflix on January 15th. That's a Friday. And it takes place in the near future, specifically the year 2036, which, for those of you who are keeping count, is 15 years into the future. And it is about a drone pilot, i.e. somebody who controls a drone from a secure location who after being demoted after a very controversial disobeying a direct order from a superior officer is sent into a war zone in Ukraine and finds himself paired with a top secret Android officer on a mission to stop a nuclear attack. That Android officer who you don't actually realize is an Android until about probably 30 minutes into the movie, but I did think it was a very cool effect to actually show him without his shirt off and, sh- and showing his robotic self. I thought that was a very cool special effect there. I won't get into too much detail, but you'll know it when you see it. This officer is known as Leo, and he's played by Anthony Mackie. The drone uh, pilot who gets demoted to an on-ground mission is named Harp, that's his character's name, and he's played by a young actor by the name of Damson Idris. And Damson Idris has had some acting experience. He is a British actor who's only about 30 years old. Actually, he'll be 30 this year, my mistake. He was born on September 2nd, 1991. He's had a lot of roles in a few movies, but mainly in TV shows. For example... He's on an FX and Hulu original right now called Snowfall. He's also been on an episode of Black Mirror as well as the new Twilight Zone that's produced by Jordan Peele. He is a British actor, but in this movie he plays an American soldier and hence he has an American accent. And this movie deals with uh, U.S. Marines and there is conflict in this movie in Ukraine, which is brought about by... Russian extremists who are kind of like ISIS, except not named ISIS in this movie. And I do realize that ISIS isn't Russian, but I just wanted to give you an example of some extremists who, despite being small in number, have a profound impact on a a certain region of the world, so much so that the U.S. has to intervene, kind of like they're doing right now. So the Russians are the bad guys in this movie, sort of. And the movie begins when a team of U.S. Marines are being ambushed into a DMZ, or for those of you who are not familiar with military terms, a demilitarized zone in Ukraine. And as they ask for support, a lieutenant, the character, as I said, his name is Harp, and he is a lieutenant who is also a drone pilot, so he has a relatively cushy job, but still a very important one. He is, um, he actually sees a suspicious vehicle that's approaching the demilitarized zone where these U.S. Marines are, and he disobeys a a direct order 
from the commanding officer on the ground as well as the one in the uh, pilot's chair who tells them not to launch, launch a, a drone strike, but he does so anyway and jeopardizes his military career. When he launches this drone strike, two Marines are killed, but according to Harp, 38 are saved. And his argument was if he hadn't launched that drone strike, all the Marines would have been killed. But you really don't exactly know that because you, you're only told that from the perspective of Lieutenant Harp as well as an opinion that the military officer Leo, who uh, Harp meets in Ukraine when he is demoted to being um, a, a, a soldier on Ground Zero, when, when the, the two of them meet eventually. So it, it's actually a pr pretty light punishment to get demoted because in most other circumstances, especially when American soldiers are being killed, he's lucky he didn't get court-martialed at Fort Leavenworth. And that's just not, and that's not just my opinion. It's also the opinion of his superior officer who demotes him. So eventually, Lieutenant Harp and Leo, Anthony Mackey's character, join forces to stop a Russian nuclear missile from hitting the United States. And I did like the dynamic in this movie between Damson Idris and Anthony Mackie. They made a really good team together. There is a twist with Anthony Mackie's character beyond him being an android. I mean, he is super smart, and he does pass off very well as a human being. And it kind of makes me wonder if 15 years from now there are going to be androids like that who could easily pass for humans. And I think that the first 75% of this movie was really good. I liked the action sequences with Anthony Mackie. I also liked one of the scenes where Anthony Mackie, unbeknownst to the rebel soldiers in Ukraine, is trying to uh, create a ceasefire, and he just steps in the middle of the rebel soldiers and the U.S. Marines who are shooting at one another. I thought that was actually a really good scene. And Anthony Mackie also has a really good uh, dialogue with uh, Damson Idris where he's explaining to him why he's designed the way he is as a black man as opposed to somebody who's blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and, and so on. I'm not going to tell you what that reasoning is, but if you see the movie, it's, it's very good reasoning. The movie falls apart... Just a little bit, actually quite a bit, during the climax of the event. And it falls apart because of its plausibility. And I'm not just talking about the science fiction elements of this movie and how androids could be um, could take on the likeness of human beings. I'm not talking about that. Maybe robots are going to be like that in 15 years. I don't know. It's not really the point of whether or not it's going to be prophetic or historically accurate 15 years from now. But there is something that is scientifically implausible that involves Lieutenant Harp's escape from a dangerous situation. It's a decent climax, but when you watch it, you think to yourself, there is no way somebody would survive that. And I'm not going to exactly tell you how the movie ends, but what I will say is it ends unrealistically. And maybe you can extrapolate that something ending unrealistically when it pertains to science and nuclear energy is means that the hero is going to live. I didn't say that either. But that's where the movie kind of falls apart. But I did think that 75% of it I got behind. The other weakness of the movie was the fact that the exposition is told uh, um, through a lot of very heavy and lengthy dialogue and not particularly shown. I did think that the movie Outside the Wire had it right in the beginning when it was explaining the premise of the movie in subtitles that at least caught several of the audience members up, but it took me a really long time seeing the movie to extrapolate that 
these two are trying to stop a nuclear missile from launching. And I also didn't quite understand if Russia was the villain in this movie, like I I said previously, or if they aided the villain. And that part of the plot wasn't particularly well materialized. But all things considered, I did think it was a fun movie to watch. I think fans of military movies as well as action films will like this film. I thought Anthony Mackie was fantastic in this film, and it might actually be his best role dramatically yet. And that is saying a lot because Anthony Mackie has been in several great movies so far. I also thought Damson Idris had a great breakout role in this movie, and it would be great to see him in other things in the future. But Outside the Wire does falter from its tangled exposition as well as the climax lacking any sort of scientific realism. So, Outside the Wire was enjoyable, but I give it my rating of a checkout. And checkout is not bad. Checkout is another way of saying the movie is good. I would have loved to have seen this movie on the big screen as well, but if it hadn't been for COVID, this movie would have been brought directly to the big screen. But I liked it. I didn't love it. I thought that Anthony Mackie and Damson Idris's acting certainly elevated this movie beyond being a bland, not-too-distant-future science fiction action film. And I did. I thought their dynamic, the chemistry between the two of them, really saved this film from being completely bland, as well as supporting performances by the likes of Emily Beecham and Michael Kelly, who interact with the characters at one point or another. But the ending really needed a bit more realism than we ultimately got. Welcome back to the show Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Pieces of a Woman, which is new-ish. It debuted on Netflix on January 7th, 2021, and I feel that if it weren't for the pandemic, this movie would probably be better viewed, at least by people who like to sit in the theater and turn their phone off and just focus on what's on the screen, as I said, in a theater. Because this is a very, very heavy drama. And it at a runtime of two hours, six minutes, I'm not necessarily sure if casual viewers of Netflix will uh, appreciate this movie, but I certainly did. I just kind of wish that I could watch it in a theater where I wouldn't have the distractions of cell phones or phone calls or computers or anything like that. But Pieces of a Woman is a new movie directed by a Polish director named Cornel Mundrusko. I hope I pronounced that right. And it's written by a screenwriter named Kata Weber, who has written the story and the screenplay for this movie. Amongst other films for which he wrote the screenplay include a movie that's in pre-production called If Not Now, When, which already sounds intriguing from its title. But before Pieces of a Woman, she wrote a screenplay to a movie called White God, which I haven't seen, and another one called Jupiter's Moon, which made... Uh, a lot of which got a lot of attention on the festival circuit. This is her first film that is actually not from what I presume to be her native Poland. And this is her first movie with American actors in it or American Canadian actors because this is an American Canadian production. It takes place in America, specifically in Boston, Massachusetts. And even though Boston is becoming one of those cities, that's kind of a mini L.A. in the sense that 
There are a lot of films that not only take place that are, but are also filmed there. Strangely enough, Pieces of Woman was not filmed at all in, in Boston. And I find that incredibly strange. It was filmed in Montreal, Canada, though. And it is the movie about a young mother's home birth that ends in unfathomable tragedy, which I didn't want to give away, but it's not exactly a spoiler because the unfathomable tragedy happens about 30 minutes into the film. And this movie is two hours, six minutes long. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit about the beginning in a little bit, but let me just summarize the, the plot for you. So when this home birth ends in unfathomable tragedy, tragedy, the mother of this, this baby, whose name is Martha, who's played by an actress named Vanessa Kirby, begins a year-long odyssey of mourning that fractures relationships with loved ones in this deeply personal story of a woman learning to live alongside her loss. As I said, the woman in question is named Martha, and she's played by Vanessa Kirby, and she's married to an intense but well-meaning construction worker by the name of Sean, who's played in this movie by Shia LaBeouf. And Shia LaBeouf has had his share of troubles over the last couple of years. First, he put a bag over his head that said, I'm not famous anymore. And then he put up these bizarre motivational videos on YouTube. But this movie and the movie he did back in 2019, uh, the peanut butter Falcon show that Shia LaBeouf is taking his acting career seriously again. And while I wouldn't exactly say he's made a comeback, he's certainly on his way to making a comeback. And this movie in particular shows a dramatic performance a, a convincing dramatic performance from Shia LaBeouf that shows that he has come a long, long way from his show, Even Stevens, which was on the Disney Channel. And when we're introduced, we see Martha and Sean, who are, I would say, happily married. They they do have a bit of financial difficulty, because when we first encounter them, we see that um, Martha's mother, Elizabeth, who's played by Ellen Burstyn, is actually giving them a minivan, it's not the car they wanted, but it's the only car that they can afford with Martha's mother's help. But the movie really gets going during one of the most crucial scenes where Martha is giving birth at home. And she wants this to be a natural birth. She doesn't want to go to the hospital, which is why she hires a midwife by the name of Eva, who's played in this movie by Molly Parker. And the scene where she's given birth is, I believe, a 20-minute scene that does not cut away at all. At, at first, the scene was going on for so long that I thought, very much like Birdman or 2017, this would be a movie with one continuous shot. Well, it doesn't exactly do that. There are a couple of continuous shots in this film, which are still pretty amazing in and of themselves, even though they don't encompass the whole film. But the scene where... Martha is given giving birth with midwife Eva's help is a movie is a, is a scene in the movie that starts off not so much tense or at least not as, as tense as it could be with a woman giving birth, but the tension eventually increases and particularly when the birth goes tragically wrong and the movie doesn't show the baby dying, but you begin to get the sense that that's what happened as the movie progresses. And as both Martha and Sean, but most especially Martha are experiencing grief. And in Martha's case, postpartum depression, because I would imagine that postpartum depression happens even with, um, birth to healthy children, but postpartum depression added to, Grief is an even deadlier combination, or at least an even heavier combination. And Vanessa Kirby does an amazing job here. She turns in the performance of a lifetime as this young mother, and she's only about 32 years old, um, going on 33. She'll be 33 on April 18th. And before she was in Pieces of a Woman, she's a British actress, by the way, who plays... 
uh, an American in this film. She actually has a recurring role on the show The Crown, where she played Princess Margaret from 2016 to 2017, and The Crown is also a Netflix original. She's also been in movies such as Mission Impossible, A Fallout, which came out three years ago, and The World to Come, which came out in 2020, which I didn't actually see, but I would, even though I haven't seen everything that Vanessa Kirby's been in, I'm pretty sure that this is her best performance. As I said before, Shia LaBeouf turns in an amazing performance as well, but Ellen Burstyn, as Martha's mother Elizabeth, turns in a great performance here as well, particularly when during a party that goes terribly wrong, a a housewarming party, I, I should add, Ellen Burstyn and Vanessa Kirby have a confrontation where Ellen Burstyn goes into a monologue for a movie where you realize that she didn't have it very easy growing up and you begin to extrapolate as Elizabeth, Ellen Burstyn's character, relays to her daughter her life as an infant that she is a Holocaust survivor. And at Ellen Burstyn's age, that is entirely possible. And it's really a, a sad scene. It's a, it's a very, uh, shall we say, intense performance by Ellen Burstyn. Certainly, I think her best performance since Requiem for a Dream. But Requiem for a Dream, not just Ellen Burstyn's performance, but but the other performances in the movie, like from Jared Leto, Jennifer Connelly, and Marlon Wayans, those were four intense performances. And... <laughs> Uh, Requiem for a Dream is a movie you probably won't want to watch twice. Would you want to watch Pieces of a Woman twice? Probably not. Not because of intensity, but because A, it's a very slow-moving drama, and B, it is of a very, very heavy subject. And I would want to caution women, if, if you have had either a miscarriage or a stillbirth, you might want to think twice before seeing this movie. I'm not saying don't see it, but be prepared because it deals with a lot of complex negative emotions. But it is a very well-directed and well-written, not to mention well-acted drama that really cuts to the core of what it's like to grieve the loss of a loved one, especially a a newborn baby. And the complications that come with that, and also the ramifications it has, not only on the people who are experiencing this loss of life, but also the people who know the person who is experiencing this loss of life. And that is why, even though I would have preferred to see this movie in a theater on the big screen, it still is a, a movie that's worth seeing. It's a compelling drama, but it is not for the casual Netflix viewer who wants to just chill out after a long week of work and watch something upbeat or entertaining. Pieces of Woman is all the things I mentioned. It's not exactly entertaining, but it is an excellent film, and Pieces of Woman is a knockout for me. I also think that I I should mention that Martin Scorsese is one of the executive producers of this movie. And executive producers don't normally have a hand in the creative process of a film, but when Martin Scorsese is on board for a film in any way, you you know it's probably better than average. And I also should note that this is actually not the first time that Ellen Burstyn worked in collaboration with Martin Scorsese. Ellen Burstyn actually won an Academy Award for Best Actress for her role in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which was directed by none other than Martin Scorsese. I believe that was her first, it it was her only win, but it was the third time she was nominated. She was previously nominated for The Last Picture Show for Best Supporting Actress and Best Actress in a Leading Role for The Exorcist the year before Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. But this movie, Pieces of a Woman, 
makes an interesting argument that maybe Ellen Burstyn should be nominated for one more Academy Award, but of course, I am not the one to say. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to review is not actually a movie, but it's more like a TV miniseries. But it is addictive and compelling like great TV miniseries usually are. This miniseries is Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, which premiered on Netflix on... January 13th, Wednesday, uh, 2021, and is a Netflix original. And this is the absolute true story about the one of the most notorious serial killers in American history and how he terrorized Los Angeles in 1985. The movie, or rather the documentary, or the docuseries, tells the story of the hunt for the Night Stalker, from the people who actually hunted him, primarily the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, specifically one of the lead investigators on the case, Jill, excuse me, Gil Carrillo, who is a native of Los Angeles and does the vast majority of the interviewing in this film. He teamed up with another uh, homicide detective Frank Salerno, and together they hunted down the Night Stalker, who had a, who of course murdered several people in the greater Los Angeles area, but his motives were not particularly clear, nor did he have a particular pattern of his murders. If he had a pattern of when he murdered, he probably would have been caught a lot sooner. But he also killed just about anyone and everyone, men and women of all ages. He didn't have a certain demographic of victims like Ted Bundy or David Berkowitz had, which made his hunt all the more elusive. The Night Stalker, by the way, is Richard Ramirez, but but. As compelling as this docuseries is, one of the reasons it's compelling is because you don't know it's Richard Ramirez if you know absolutely nothing about the Night Stalker, and you also uh, don't get his name until the end of the third part of this four-part series. By the way, I should also mention that the four parts of the series put together total three hours, nine minutes, but it's so compelling that you don't notice that the movie is a combined total of more than three hours. And that could probably be said for a lot of great movies out there, like, for instance, both uh, The Godfather Part 1 and 2. I was going to say both Godfather movies, but yeah, Parts 1 and 2. Part 3 felt a lot slower for several reasons, but that's another topic. But it goes into what Roger Ebert said. He said... No great movie is ever long enough, and no bad movie is ever short enough. And Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, is certainly no exception to that rule, even though it's not technically a movie. But I said this about Ava DuVernay's Netflix miniseries about the Central Park Five, which was called... Uh, let's see when they see us, I had to look that up. (laughs) I was cheating a little bit, but when they see us was an excellent, uh, mini series. It was uh, dramatic. I guess you could call it a docudrama, but that movie, which I think was longer than night stalker, the hunt for a serial killer went by really quickly. I just kept watching it until it was over. I think I watched it all in one sitting, but as, as I said previously, 
I, I can't really make very many comments about the weaknesses of this docuseries because it's compelling enough, as I said, for anyone to sit down and watch it for its entire run, which I would have done if I didn't have a full-time job that didn't involve uh, critiquing movies, which I do. But the fourth part of this series details the trial of Richard Ramirez once he's caught. And they do actually reveal some interesting facts about the trial. For instance, it was the most expensive trial in L.A. County's history before the O.J. Simpson trial. Also, Richard Ramirez had women who sent sent him uh, scantily clad photos of themselves. So he had... Uh, <laughs> a list of, or a roster of very questionably motivated groupies. But then again, the same could be also be said for other serial killers like Ted Bundy. It's, it's a very disturbing trend, but there are women out there who are attracted to a bad boy, even though it's possible that this bad boy could kill them if they were in a relationship and he was out of prison. But they detail that. The one thing that this movie did not detail was the fact that Richard Ramirez on November 7th, 1989 was very justifiably sentenced to death for the murders he committed. Now, there's nothing surprising there unless he pleaded insanity, which he didn't, but he could have had a case for pleading insanity. Yeah, the death penalty was really the only option for this guy. What is surprising is that Richard Ramirez died on death row, but A, it was because of cancer, he wasn't executed, and B, he died on death row in 2013, 24 years after he was sentenced to death, which begs the question, what took L.A. so long to execute this guy, especially when he's a serial killer who terrorized an entire city and one of the largest cities in America, no less. Why did it take that long to execute him? You won't find the answer in this documentary, which I do think is a missed opportunity. And given how compelling the hunt for Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, was, they could have put a part five just detailing why Richard Ramirez was in was on death row for so long, and I would have watched it. I would have watched it hook, line, and sinker, and I would have been intrigued by it. But it is, other than that, I'm not going to fault this movie for not including a part five and not explaining why it, it took, ultimately, L.A. did not execute Richard Ramirez even though they should have done it just a few years, probably as late as 1992, but they didn't. But I guess it kind of shows you, A, how complicated death row actually is, and B, how complicated the appeals process is when it comes to death row, and how a lot of people who do deserve to die don't because they take advantage of this appeals process. But that is another story for another time. But I did think, especially the first three parts of this four-part series, and actually the the part of the um, the fourth part of the series when you discover or when it's detailed how Richard Ramirez actually got caught. He and I'm not going to give too much away, but I will say, and you can look it up. But if you don't know, see this documentary because he is captured but not by the police. And there were actually two instances detailed in this documentary where the police could have caught him, but they missed the opportunity to do so. They were prepared, but somehow Richard Ramirez, who doesn't seem like a particularly smart guy, eluded them. So I I loved the the interviews with uh, Gil Carrillo, Carrillo, especially when... They detail not only his hunt for uh, the Night Stalker, but also how many hours per day 
it, it took him to do this police work and what effect that had on his family. That alone could be a, an intriguing movie in and of itself. I also liked the interviews with the KTTV and KNBC uh, reporters, such as Laurel Erickson and Tony Valdez, who covered, I, I think, the hunt for the Night Stalker responsibly. Some politicians, like then San Francisco Mayor Dianne Feinstein, weren't quite as responsible, but this documentary details very well why the government, as well as some members of the press, but not the ones featured as interviewees in this documentary, made it a lot more difficult for the LAPD to find the Night Stalker. And it's really intriguing stuff. And Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, gets my rating of a knockout. It is what every great documentary really should be. It's intriguing. It it uses archive footage and photographs to its advantage and actually makes Richard Ramirez even scarier than he already was in real life. And I think this movie does a lot more justice to the hunt for the night stalker than other films that were based on directly on Richard Ramirez's notoriety and his eventual capture, including one movie that came out in 2002 that co-starred, uh, Rosalind Sanchez, who I think is is a very good actress. But that movie, as well as other serial killer movies that were made around that time and either had a limited um, theater release or went directly to video, that movie was guilty of exploitation. This movie is not exploitative. It tells, I think, very well the the tale of the horror and the frustration and the the dynamics of finding this really, really horrible man who put a whole city under terror. He's dead now, and thank God for that. But I would have liked to have known why it took so long for L.A. to execute him, and they ultimately never did. But I suppose that's another story for another time. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for the show, it's now time for me to get into what's going to be available for streaming next. And this is usually a part of the show where I detail movies that are going to be released into theaters. And for a while during this pandemic, movie theaters were closed. That's not necessarily the case now. A lot of big chains like AMC have opened, but... As somebody who loves movies, I'm going to tell all of you two things. First of all, don't go out to movie theaters, not unless you've gotten a vaccine first. Because as much as I love movies and as much as I miss movie theaters, you don't want to put yourself in danger by going out to a movie at this time. But B... If there's a movie theater in your town, particularly one that's not a big chain like AMC or Regal, find some way to support them. Either go on their website and stream movies, since a lot of independent theaters offer streaming for limited movies, or you can actually give them a donation. For instance, I don't live in Boston anymore. I used to. I actually started this show on Boston Free Radio, but when I was in Boston, I frequented a lot of independent theaters there. The Coolidge Corner Theater is still my favorite theater in the entire world, and it's also a nonprofit organization. I also 
uh, monetarily supported other independent movie theaters, such as the Brattle Theater in Cambridge, which is in walking distance of Harvard University. And I'm just saying that if you have a local theater and it is especially a nonprofit, try to support it any way you can. But don't go out to a movie. I'm just saying that. I know how much it it, st- it sucks to stay at home and how watching a movie at home is a good option, but it's not my preferred option. But still, that's all we got. The primary thing is that you stay safe out there. So with that said, I'm going to get into movies that are going to be premiering primarily the week of Monday, January 18th to Friday, January 22nd. And there are several movies that are going to be premiering on Netflix. There's one movie called A Monster Calls, and this movie came out in early January 2017. This is a movie that kind of flew under the radar, and it had a disadvantage of being released in January, which traditionally either the best movies, you know, the Academy Award winning hope or the Academy Award hopefuls or the worst movies the ones that the studios know are bad and they just want to get it out there to cut their losses, those kind of movies are the only ones that come out. But A Monster Calls is one of the exceptions to to the rule. It is a fantasy that can also be described as an adventure and a drama about a boy who seeks the help of a tree monster to cope with his single mother's terminal illness. I saw this movie back in January of 2017, and I gave it a knockout. It's a movie that stars Louis McDougal as the boy, as well as Sigourney Weaver and Felicity Jones in supporting roles, and it features Liam Neeson as the voice of the tree monster. And Liam Neeson has disappointed me in recent years with his live-action films, but A Monster Calls is probably one of the best films he's done this century. And that's saying quite a bit. But it is based on a novel written by Patrick Ness, who also wrote the screenplay. And that is a movie that I recommend you see. It's not a movie I'm going to be reviewing because I've already seen it. But I'm letting you know that it is uh, one of the options that's available beginning on Saturday, January 16th on Netflix. Another movie that is going to be premiering on Netflix but is not a Netflix original is one that's called Radium Girls. And Radium Girls is a movie that came out in, or it was filmed in 2018. According to IMDb, it was released in the U.S. on December 15th, 2020, in limited release. But it takes place in the 1920s, and it's about a group of factory workers who advocate for safer working conditions after some of their colleagues become ill from radium exposure. It's directed by Lydia Dean Pilcher and Ginny Moeller. So two women directed this movie. And Ginny Moeller also co-wrote the screenplay along with Brittany Shaw, who acts in it, uh, Joey King, who's been in some second-rate horror films, but I have the feeling that she's going to be in a movie that will eventually blow everyone away. It also co-stars Abby Quinn and Kara Seymour, um, actresses I'm not quite as familiar with in the years that I've seen movies. But actually, I've said before that I don't generally review older films, as in older films that came out 2020 or previously, but this one I might make an exception with because of the simple fact that its official release date was December 15th, 2020, and it is debuting on Netflix on Saturday, January 16th. I will see that. I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's premiering on Netflix, but is not a Netflix original is one that is called Homefront. And this is an older film that I won't be reviewing, but it is on net or it will be on Netflix on Monday, January 18th. The movie stars Jason Statham, James Franco, and Winona Ryder, and it's about a former DEA agent, a drug enforcement agency agent, who moves his family to a quiet town where he soon tangles with a local meth drug lord. My guess is that 
James Franco is the drug lord because that's usually the kind of role that James Franco plays, particularly in an offbeat movie like this. What's interesting is that Sylvester Stallone is not in it, but he wrote the screenplay for this movie. And it's been a while, I think, since Sylvester Stallone wrote a screenplay, so that's quite impressive. It's based on a novel written by Chuck Logan, who wrote the novel Prince of Thieves, on which the much-celebrated Ben Affleck-directed movie The Town was based. I haven't seen Homefront. I probably will get around to seeing it, but it won't be one of those movies that I'll be reviewing for the show because it is older. But if you want to check it out for yourself, it will be premiering on Netflix on Monday, January 18th. On Tuesday, January 19th, there's the season four of Hello Ninja. Because it's a TV series, I won't get into too much, too many details about what that story is about. On Wednesday, January 20th, there's a series that's, that's called Daughter from Another Mother, a.k.a. Madre Solo I Dos, which is a Netflix original, but it is a series, so that's all I'm going to say about it. Another series that's going to be premiering on Wednesday, January 20th is Spycraft, which is a docuseries. I don't know if it's a limited docuseries like Night Stalker, but I'll look it up, and if it is a limited series, I might give it a fair shot. But another movie that's going to be making an appearance on Wednesday, January 20th is one that is called Sightless, S-I-G-H-T, L-E-S-S. This is a 2020 film that I might consider for reviewing for this show because its release date was September of 2020, but it's new enough, so I might give it a shot. But this is a movie about a young woman by the name of Ellen Ashland who, after an attack renders her blind, she withdraws from the world to recover, I guess in hopes of getting her sight back. But soon she plunges into paranoia, unable to convince anyone that her assailant has returned to terrorize her by hiding in plain sight. The movie stars Denise Octanese, Madeline Patch, and Alexander Koch, not um, actors with whom I'm familiar. It's labeled a drama and thriller. It's not rated, but my guess is if it probably came out in theaters, it would probably be... Rated PG-13 at least, R at most. It seems like the subject of an R-rated movie, but there are some legitimately scary movies out there that are rated PG-13, so nowadays you never really know. But Sightless will be premiering on Netflix on Wednesday, January 20th. It's not a Netflix original, but it will be making its debut on Netflix, and I will try to see it and I will let you know what I think uh, if I see it on next week's show. On Thursday, January 21st, a uh, season four of Call My Agent will be premiering. But again, this is a show about movies, not a show about shows. So I'm going to leave it at that. And I'm going to sort of weed out all the series that are going to be premiering on Netflix. There are about five of them. One of them is actually season two of Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous which might be kind of fun, but again, I'm not going to be reviewing it there. There's one movie uh, that is a foreign film, which I believe is Spanish or Mexican, and it's called So My Grandma's a Lesbian! Exclamation point. Interesting. I think you probably know the plot of the movie just by me giving you the English title of that. Uh, The Spanish title of the movie is Salir del Ropero, which does not literally translate to so my grandma's a lesbian, but um, I do have some uh, idea of what that uh, Spanish phrase means. It means to leave of, I don't know what ropero means, but it doesn't mean grandma. That's abuela, which is grandma. So I don't know, but it seems like an interesting premise, definitely based on the title alone. I will let you know what I think if I see it um, for next week's show. But there's another movie that's going to be premiering on Netflix, and this is a Netflix original that's called The White Tiger. And it stars Priyanka Chopra Jonas, who looked amazing in the film We Could Be Heroes. And I would imagine that she's going to look pretty amazing in this movie. If you'll excuse me if I gawk and uh, 
uh, at uh, Nick Jonas's wife. She's goddamn gorgeous, though. I'm just going to tell you. But anyway, the White Tiger uh, tells the epic journey of a poor Indian driver who must use his wit and cunning to break free from servitude to his rich masters and rise to the top of the heap. This is based on a book, I presume of the same name, written by Aravand Adiga, and the screenplay is written by the director, Ramin Barani. And the best-known actor in this movie to Western audiences is Priyanka Chopra Jonas, who is given top billing for not for no good reason. And the poor Indian driver in this movie is played by... Raj Kumar Rao, who I'm not familiar with, but probably Bollywood audiences would regard him as maybe the next Tom Hanks. I don't know. I I only see Bollywood films that come to my attention, and the the films I see from Bollywood probably represent about one half of a percent of the Indian films that come out per year. So... I am not by any means an expert at Bollywood. I've seen some films, but not <laughs> not many uh, particularly. But The White Tiger will be premiering on Netflix on Friday, January 22nd. I will see that movie, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Let me get a couple more streaming platforms in for you before I sign off for good. Let's see on Disney plus there is a, there's a mini shorts collection that's called Pixar popcorn. And that's my guess is a compilation of shorts that have premiered before, uh, Disney Pixar films that have been released in theaters over the last couple of years. There's another film that's going to be making an appearance on Disney plus, but it's not regarded as a Disney plus original. And this one is called Wild Uganda. And Wild Uganda sounds like a documentary, but I don't have any information on it, so I can't tell you about this. And that's probably the reason why I emphasize the movies that are going to be premiering on Netflix, because Netflix was really the first streaming platform, and they have enough clout in the entertainment industry and they've been around long enough so that they have a head start over Hulu, over Disney Plus and even over Amazon Prime for churning out originals. Everyone else is just catching up. So, Wild Uganda will be premiering on Disney Plus on Friday, January 22nd. I'd be interested to see the Pixar Popcorn Mini Shorts collection as well. Maybe I'd be able to summarize those films uh, up as well and let you know what I think. Either way, Pixar makes some great animated shorts, some of the best I've ever seen, and there's there's a very good reason for that because Disney Pixar could pretty much do or make whatever they want, and that's not an insult either. That's That's just how it is, but... Pixar Popcorn, Wild Uganda, they're going to be premiering on Disney Plus on January 22nd. So if you want to check them out, there you go. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.